We're in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, beginning with verse 13 to 17. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap and became a mother to him. The neighbor woman said, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Thank you, sir. The book of Ruth. It's the Cinderella story of the Old Testament, isn't it? It's an amazing love story that honestly is so much more than that. And so this morning we're gonna close out this story. We're gonna close out our study in the book of Ruth this morning. Now, uh, if you are somebody who attends here regularly, you might have a Bible. If you are a guest or somebody that does not own a Bible, we have Bibles outside these double doors. Go and grab one, that's our gift to you. We wanna make sure that you have the word of God in your life and accessible to you every single day. If you're gonna use one of our uh, Bibles, one of the Bibles that you are taking, we're gonna start on page 160. It's just giving you a heads up. Now, before we jump into the book of Ruth, before we jump into this story, we're gonna play a little game that's gonna kind of frame how this morning is going to play out, all right? And so we're gonna throw some images up on the screen and what I want you to do is as soon as this, the image pops up, I want you to yell out what it is that you see. Is that easy enough? Think we can do it? All right, what do you see? How many of you see a vase, because we're fancy, or a chalice? How many of you see two faces? So which is it, two faces or a vase? Both? What about the next one? What do you see? How many of you see a young woman looking away? How many of you see an old woman looking to her side? Because it's all in either the chin of the young woman or the nose of the old lady. Let's go to the next one. What do you see? A duck? How many of you see a rabbit? Right, because the ears, they change, right? They, they go from being the ears of a rabbit to now it's the beak of a duck. All right, and this last one, this one gets me. This is trippy. Is he looking at you or is he looking to the side? What kind of witchcraft is this? Right? It's crazy. This whole thing is what's called the gestalt switch. It's where you have two images in one. And what makes these interesting is that our brains are not capable of seeing both things at the exact same time. So we see one or we see the other. 
And for all of you, as soon as that image popped up, you saw something at first glance, did you not? And then you had to stare at it a little bit longer to see the other thing, right? For some of you, you saw a vase. And then you saw a young woman and you saw a duck and you saw a guy looking at you. And some of you looked at the exact same images and you saw two people looking at each other. And you saw an old lady. And you saw a rabbit. And you saw a guy looking to the side. But the longer that you stared and as things were called out, the easier it got for you to see what else was in that image, right? You see, the big idea for this morning and the big idea, honestly, for the entire book of Ruth is that when a glance shows hardship, gaze until you see hope. When a glance shows hardship, gaze until you see hope because the call of Jesus isn't to look away from hardship but to look at it fully. And by his grace, what we see at first glance will become something more beautiful than what we first saw. This truth is so incredibly apparent in the book of Ruth. What we see at first glance is not where this story ends up. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, you're in luck because we're gonna walk through the entire book in 30 minutes. Are you ready? Here we go. The book of Ruth, it's four chapters. It's one of two books in the Bible named after women, the other being the book of Esther. The book of Ruth talks about a woman more than any other book of the Bible. It starts with the story of a woman, it ends with the story of a woman, and the woman's name is Naomi. Suckers. (laughs) The book of Ruth talks about Naomi. It starts with Naomi, it ends with Naomi, it's about Naomi's faith, it's about Naomi's struggles, it's about Naomi's salvation. In the beginning of this book, the author gives us a lot of context for this story. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. This is a really, really loaded sentence. You see, when the judges ruled, it was chaotic. When the judges ruled, there was just immense craziness going on. In fact, in the book of Judges, they describe this time as a time when people did what they thought was right in their own eyes, meaning everybody was doing whatever they wanted. It was chaotic. There wasn't a ton of order because people were rebelling against God. And so in this time, when the judges ruled, this cycle took place where the people of Israel would rebel against God, and so God lovingly would punish them to draw them back to him. So in this discomfort, in this punishment, they would cry out to God, God save us, and he in his mercy would provide a judge to deliver them. And they would be delivered, and there was peace with God until they started to rebel. So God sends a punishment, and this cycle goes on, and on, and on, and on. 
And so this story takes place when people were doing what is right in their own eyes and God is in the midst of punishing them with a famine. We see famines all throughout the Old Testament. We see famines all throughout scripture. God used famine to get people's attention. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 13, he's speaking to Ezekiel. He says, son of man, suppose a land sins against me by acting faithlessly. I will stretch out my hand against it to cut off its supply of bread to send a famine through it, right? This acknowledges that famine is often the corrective hand of God. Famine leads people to desperation and desperation. Check. Can't get rid of me. So the backdrop for this story is that the people of God are doing what is right in their own eyes, not what is right in the eyes of God. People are rebelling against God and God is punishing them for their disobedience. This is what's happening to the nation of Israel. And so we start this story looking at Israel and then we zoom in a little bit into this town called Bethlehem. Most of us have heard of Bethlehem because who came from Bethlehem? Jesus. How many of you knew that Bethlehem translates house of bread? Bethlehem is Kansas. What happens to a house of bread when there is a famine? There is no bread in the house of bread. So through God's corrective hand, there is a famine in the land, meaning there is no bread in the house of bread. And what happens when there is no bread in the house of bread is you have two choices. One, you lean into God and trust that he will provide for you, or you seek provision from someone else. And so the story started with the people of Israel, and then it moves into the town of Bethlehem, and now we're going to zoom in really, really close on one family. It's the family of Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Kilian and Malon. And it says that Elimelech and Naomi move their family from Bethlehem to this town called Moab. And this was a no-no. This was not a great thing. Moab was considered bad news. You see, Moab, the people of Moab, were descendants of a man named Lot, the story is found in the book of Genesis, but Lot has no sons, and his daughters, trying to do what's best for their son, get their dad, get their dad drunk, sleep with him, and get pregnant by their own dad. And one daughter gives birth to a son, and his name is Ammon, and they become the Ammonites. And the other daughter gives birth to a son named Moab, and his people become the Moabites. And so Moab was settled by Moab, and these are the descendants of his people. They are known as children of incest. Imagine having that label on your LinkedIn account. That's what they're known for. They're not really welcome in Israel, right? They're considered gross and dirty, and not only do they have that history, but they don't worship Yahweh. They don't worship the same God. They worship this God, Chemosh. And they sacrifice children to him, and they do all these sinful, just disgusting things in worship to this God. 
And so they're told, you shouldn't go to Moab. You need to stay away because what they're doing has the potential to harm you more than help you. And so this is where Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons move. They move to Moab. And they don't just go to Moab and get food and then go home. No, they go to Moab and they settle there. And it says that Elimelech died. And we don't know why, we don't know from what, but Elimelech has passed away. So now we have Naomi and her two sons until her two sons get married to Moabite women, which again, was not right in the eyes of the Lord. He wanted them to be a separate people. He didn't want any worship of any other gods to come into their home. And so now you've got Naomi with her two sons and their two Moabite wives and her daughter-in-law. They are not doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And it says that Kalon and both sons, totally dropped his name, Malon and Chilion, that they both died too. So now you have three women that have no husbands, no sons, no children in general. They have no security, they have no safety. And Naomi gets word that rain is returned to Bethlehem and that this famine was over. Finally, a little good news and a lot of really bad news. And so Naomi has to decide, all right, what is the best thing for me? What's the best thing? Do I stay here in a foreign land with no husband, with no sons, with two women that honestly are kind of a ball and chain that I have to take care of? Or do I go back to Bethlehem, to a land where I don't have rights to any of my husband's land, I don't have rights to anything because I don't have a husband and I don't have sons. So either way, she's got it kind of rough, but she decides, I'm gonna go back to Bethlehem. So she goes to her daughters-in-law, she goes to Orpah and she goes to Ruth and she shares what she's doing. I'm gonna head back to Bethlehem. It makes the most sense for you guys to just stay here in Moab, go home, go back to your people, go to your parents, go find a husband, you'll be good. But both of these daughter-in-laws really love her and they want to stay with her. And so they're like, nah, like we'll just go with you. But Naomi gets pretty blunt with them and she's like, all right, ladies, do you realize how old I am? Like what are the chances that I am going to get married again? And what are the chances that not only am I going to get married again, but that I'm going to have kids in my old age? And that They're not just gonna be kids, but they're gonna be sons. And what are the chances that you're gonna stick around long enough for these sons to grow up to be old enough to where you can marry them? Like, this just doesn't make any sense. Go home, go back to your people, and I'm gonna leave. And so Orpah does what her name means, gazelle. She bolts, sheds back. But Ruth, whose name means friendship, sticks with Naomi. And so together, Naomi and Ruth head back to Bethlehem. And upon arriving to Bethlehem, some women notice Naomi. She's been gone for 10 years. She's with a dirty Moabite girl. Her husband, Elimelech's nowhere to be found. Neither are her sons. So they start asking, who is this? Is this Naomi? And her response is, no, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me sweet. Call me Mara 
because the Almighty has made me bitter. The Almighty is against me. Don't call me sweet, call me bitter. When we left, when we went to Moab, we were full. I had everything, and he's brought me back empty. This is how the book of Ruth begins, with death, with devastation, with disappointment. How many of you can relate to Naomi? You're bitter. You feel empty. You feel abandoned. You feel like everything has been taken from you. You feel like God's against you. But when a glance shows hardship, gaze until you find hope. When a glance shows hardship, gaze until you find hope. What was the reason that Naomi left to begin with? Because there was a famine. She wasn't very full, was she? No, she left. She didn't leave full. The author does a really good job of explaining in the last verse of chapter one what's going on when they come back to Bethlehem. It says that they return to Bethlehem at the beginning of harvest. So they leave during a famine, but they return during harvest. It's pretty obvious to understand why Naomi is hurting, right? She has no husband, she has no son, she has no security, but Naomi isn't the only one in this spot, is she? No. Ruth, Ruth's life is in ruins. She has no husband, she has no son, she has no security. She's left everyone and everything that she knows. In following Naomi, she makes this coffee cup declaration of wherever you go, I'm gonna go. Wherever you stay, I'm gonna stay. Your people are gonna be my people. Your God is going to be my God. Where you die, I will die. She was a really, really, really new believer. So she no longer is worshiping Kamal, she is worshiping Yahweh, which means she's no longer accepted back in Moab, but she's definitely not welcome in Israel because she's from Moab. That's a heck of a catch-22. She literally has nowhere to go. And the only person that she knows has completely thrown her under the bus by declaring that she's empty and that she has nothing. Could you imagine being Ruth standing next to her when she's like, Call me bitter, because I got nothing. But I came here too, right? The only connection that she has to this new land is somebody who is upset and bitter and has cast her to the side. But despite her life being in ruins, Ruth proves to be resilient. You see, it just so happens that Naomi and Ruth come back to Bethlehem during harvest. And it just so happens that God had a provision in the law to provide for those in need. And so the marginalized would be able to go to the margins where they would be taken care of. Farmers had to leave a portion of their crops behind so people in need could go and collect them. 
And so Ruth takes advantage of this with Naomi's blessing, and she goes to get after him. She starts working. And so she goes to a random field hoping to find favor with a landowner. She shows up every morning. She works until night. She doesn't take a ton of breaks. Ruth is in an ideal employee, except she's not employed. Now, it just so happens that she ends up in a field owned by a man named Boaz, who just so happened to be a relative of her deceased father-in-law, Elimelech. And Boaz takes favor over this foreign woman because of her resilient reputation. He's heard, man, she works. She's got good character. And so Boaz takes her and says, I want you to glean in my fields. I want you to come and work with my servants so that you're not alone. He asks his men to protect and keep her safe, and he gives from his harvest, not just what is left behind. So God brings Ruth to a foreign land to pick up leftovers in a random field where she finds favor with a not-so-random man. How many of you can relate to Ruth? You feel like your life is in ruins. You're lonely. You feel stuck. You don't know how to move forward. You're wanting a fresh start. And you're left picking up the pieces. But when a glance shows hardship, gaze until you find hope. Right? When a glance shows hardship, keep gazing until you find hope. For some of you, your life has been ruined by a decision that you've made. For some of you, your life's been ruined by a decision somebody else has made. But Ruth's first step forward was literally picking up leftovers in the field. You feel ruined? Like Ruth, do the best thing to the best of your ability every single day and eventually your reputation for being resilient will pay off. This is character development. In the midst of difficulty, look for opportunity. That's what Ruth did. It's difficult, but there's an opportunity and she goes after it. Now Naomi's been watching Ruth go to work every day Naomi's enjoyed the food that she's been bringing back, right? Ruth has been providing for her. But she's also enjoying what's going on between Boaz and Ruth. And so Naomi gives Ruth uh, some not so great advice. She tells Ruth, here's the deal. Boaz has been working long hours and he could probably use some company. The issue is you are ripe. You've been working in a field day in and day out. You stink. Go take a shower, put on some perfume, put on that little dress of yours, and go get it, girl. It's in the Hebrew. I guarantee it. (laughs) Go get it, girl. So Ruth does what Naomi asks of her. She gets cleaned up. She goes to the threshing floor where Boaz is working late into the night and it says that he ate and he drank until he was satisfied and he crashed in a pile of barley. He probably bruised beer, just saying. And she lays down at his feet. 
I don't know about you, but if I went to bed and I woke up in the middle of the night and there was a stranger laying next to me, I'd be really confused. Either that or something happened that shouldn't have happened. And so Boaz asks, who are you? He wanted to know who she was. He didn't want to know why she was there. Because the reason she was there looks incredibly sketchy. So we ask, who are you? And she says, it's Ruth, your servant. And instead of doing what Naomi had asked, she kind of pivoted a little bit. And instead of manipulating the situation, she says, I'm, I'm your servant. And she asks Boaz to marry her. She says, would you take me under your wing? Would you be my protector? Would you be my provider? Would you care for me in a way that nobody else can? Now Boaz has been intrigued by what is going on and he tells her, hey, I'm gonna do what I can do, but there's a system in place where somebody closer in the family has rights to all of your land and to you. But let me go see if I can sort things out. I'm gonna do what I can do. And then he says, you came here and it looks really shady. So you should probably leave before the sun comes up and people leave or people see you leave here but I don't just want you to leave here. I want you to go home provided for. And so he tells her to bring her shawl. He fills it with six measures of barley. He sends her on her way. Boaz shows that he cares for Ruth enough that he's worried about her reputation because if things don't play out between him and her, this could hurt her big time when it comes to finding another guy And not only that, he cares enough about her and Naomi that he provides food for them that they did not work for. Boaz is a stud. He sounds like an incredible man, doesn't he? He's working and he's waiting. He's successful and he's single. His name means strong. And that's who he is. Boaz is strong in faith, strong in integrity. He's a man with a healthy work ethic. He's a business owner. He is a man in waiting. How many of you can relate to Boaz? You feel like you're in a season of waiting. All right, God, what are you doing? What do you got me here for? Maybe you're walking with the Lord. You're like, God, I'm with you. I'm on board with whatever you got for me. Just tell me what it is. I call this a spiritual itch, right? You just want to know what's next. Today, we live in a world of instant gratification. But what's beautiful is Boaz was more concerned with his legacy than with his life. I care about the future more than I care about right now. He wasn't swiping right on Tinder. He could have had any woman he wanted, but instead he waited for a woman he couldn't live without. And he was forced to do and focused 
on what God had for him each day. And so what Boaz did in the waiting was he went to work. Boaz continued to build for the future. He continued to save for the future. Boaz continued to prepare for a future that he knew nothing about. But he trusted that God was with him and that God had a plan. And so Boaz worked for his future and he worked on himself, right? Character becomes apparent in the waiting. You see, Boaz's character didn't just happen, it was developed. Church, in the midst of the unknown, invest in your legacy. You don't have to have all the answers to invest in your legacy. Because who you are as a person matters far more than any possessions you will ever own. So Boaz, being the businessman that he is, he goes to the city gates And there he finds this man who has first right to Ruth and Naomi and all of the property. So he grabs this guy and he goes and gets 10 elders and he takes them all uh, to a space, right? He basically takes them to court, sets these elders as the jury and says, all right, we're gonna knock this out. So he lays out his case. Says, here's the deal. Naomi's back, she can't do anything with this land. She legally doesn't have rights to it because she's a woman. You want her land? And the other gentleman says, well, of course, I love her land, right? There was just a famine. You'd be crazy to not take land that's producing crops. But Boaz says, it's not just about the land, it's also about Ruth, and it's about Naomi, and it's about their family, and it's about the line of Elimelech, and the sign of the, the line of Malon, and this needs to continue. And so if you end up saying yes to this, you're not just getting their land, but you're getting these women. You're gonna have kids with Ruth. And this becomes a much larger ask for this individual. And so he ends up coming back and saying, yeah, I, I can't do that. I've already got kids of my own. I've got an inheritance that's gonna go to them. If I end up with another wife and other kids, this inheritance is gonna get split. I'm not willing to do that. And so this man passes on the opportunity to redeem, to take under his wing, Ruth, Naomi, and everything involved. Boaz is a stud. He gets it done, right? Ruth comes that night lays at his feet, asks him, I need you to take me under your wing. And he says, go home, I'm gonna do what I do. And the next day, he's got it figured out. Ladies, find a man like Boaz. So we're gonna pick up what Brian read this morning. We're gonna pick up in verse 13 of chapter four. It says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. You see, Ruth is no longer a widow. Ruth is no longer childless. Ruth now has a son. Ruth's first husband, Malon, his name translates sickness, and he died. Her new husband's name, Boaz, means strength. Strong. In Ruth's first marriage, she was unable to get pregnant. In this new marriage, the Lord has granted conception to her. We see Boaz redeem Ruth. 
he takes her under his wing. Boaz doesn't just buy land rights, he buys Ruth and he buys Naomi, Naomi, and in doing so, God blesses him with an heir. Up until this point, Boaz is just a single guy. Now he's married and he has a family and now he has a son who's going to keep the line going. This is a big deal. Verse 14 says, the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Right? A couple things in here. It starts with this phrase, the women said. The women said, Naomi's not alone anymore. She's got a community. The women said to her, right? These same women who once asked, is this Naomi? And she said, call me Mara, because I'm bitter. And at the end of this story, they are praising the Lord for his faithfulness. They are praising the Lord for sending a redeemer. But this redeemer, it's not just for Ruth, it's for her. You see, Boaz redeems Ruth, but it's in this baby boy that Naomi is redeemed. Women continue to heap on blessings. Says your daughter-in-law, this girl from Moab, she's better to you than seven sons. This is a big deal. In Jewish tradition, to have seven sons was to have the ultimate family. Seven was the number of perfection. It was the number of completeness. This was a huge deal, right? These women are saying, you know what? You're better off having one Ruth than seven sons. You've been so incredibly blessed by Ruth. She followed you to Bethlehem. She worked day in and day out to provide for you. She didn't take your bad advice and instead pursued Boaz the right way. She gave birth to a redeemer for herself and for you. And because of that, you are better off. Now, not many of us have that kind of relationship with our in-laws, do we? Naomi is immensely blessed. Verse 16. This is Naomi took the child she placed him on her lap and she became a mother to him. Some translations say she became a nurse to him, a nanny to him. Verse 17, the neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Naomi goes from having empty hands, right? I have nothing. Everything has been taken from me to having full hands with this beautiful grandchild, this redeemer, this future. Naomi becomes a nanny, and then we see this baby get a name. And what's wild to me is the dad didn't name the baby, did he? No, and the mom didn't name the baby, and grandma didn't name the baby. Who named the baby? Grandma's friends. How many of you went to a hospital to have a baby, and you said, hey, mom, go outside, ask your friends what we should name our kid. 
Somebody in first service said that happened to them. Shelbyville is a weird place, man. <laughs> Grandma's friends name this baby. In a prophetic word over his life, they name this baby Obed, which means worshiper of God. In the cycle of judges, when people were doing what was right in their own eyes, this family has been redeemed by a baby who will be a worshiper of God. Church in the midst of death, look for new life. Look for new life. The end of chapter four leaves us with a genealogy. It says that Obed goes on to father Jesse who fathers David. Now David goes on to become the king over Israel. David is known as a man after God's own heart. David wrote a ton of the Psalms. David is the forefather to the ultimate king, Jesus. You see, at first glance, we are introduced to a hurting Naomi, a ruined Ruth, and a waiting Boaz. But when we gaze for a while longer, we see a whole Naomi, a redeemed Ruth, and a worshiping Boaz. Naomi, wow, what a struggle. Naomi goes from hurting to healing to happy to whole. That's the full picture. That's the gaze. Ruth goes from being ruined to resilient to redeemed. That's the gaze. Boaz goes from waiting to working to worshiping. That's the gaze. This isn't just a cute little romance story. This is a testimony of all that God has done. While studying the book of Ruth, I came across this statement and it stuck with me. It says, mercy is the hand inside the glove of tragedy. Mercy is the hand inside the glove of tragedy. And there's no truer statement in this testimony because it was God's hand in the famine. It was God's hand in bringing Naomi back to Bethlehem. It was God's hand in bringing Naomi back to him. It was God's hand bringing them to Bethlehem at the beginning of a harvest season. It was God's hand that offered gleaning laws to allow Ruth to provide for them. It was God's hand that orchestrated the field that Ruth ended up in. It was God's hand that protected Ruth through the strength of Boaz. It was God's hand that transformed Naomi's bad advice into a marriage proposal. It was God's hand that was preparing Boaz in the waiting, keeping him single and allowing him time to build up the resources necessary to redeem this family. It was God's hand in the marriage of Boaz and Ruth. It was the hand of God in the conception of this child. It was God's hand in the healing of Naomi, the redeeming of Ruth and the work of Boaz. But he wasn't finished there. It was God's hand in Obed fathering Jesse. It was God's hand in Jesse fathering David. It was God's hand in David fathering Solomon who went on to build the temple where God resided with his people. And it was God's hand in every generation that led to the birth of Jesus. 
It was God's hand that initiated the redemption of all people to him through Jesus Christ. It was the hand of God that raised Jesus from the dead and it is God's hand that adopts us in as children when we put our faith in Jesus. You see, when a glance shows hardship, gaze until you see hope. Because God has shown himself to be faithful time and time and time again. So regardless of your circumstances, there is always hope because God's hand is always at work. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you that this isn't just a cute little romance story, that this is a testimony of who you are that you're bigger, that you're stronger, that you're more in charge than anything we face. And that at first glance, when we're overwhelmed by death and destruction and despair, we can always find joy because you're in it with us. You're at work in it with us. Father, I ask for those that are hurting As for those that would say, you know what, I understand where Naomi was because I am there right now. Father, I ask that you would heal them, that you would make them whole. I ask that you would surround them with your people and that together they would sit in your presence, that there could be a funeral for their heart, that there could be a funeral for their hurt, that it wouldn't be something that just carries on for generation to generation, but it would be something that gets put to death and that you would give them new life. Father, I pray for those that feel as though their life is ruined. I pray that you would redeem them, that you would draw them to yourself and that you would put them back together in a way that only you can. And for those that are waiting, Father, I ask that you would give them a daily nudge in their obedience, that they would find contentment in you and not in what they're waiting for that you would be enough, that they would trust in you, that you are at work and what is to come is even better than they could ever imagine. So Father, thank you that you didn't leave us without a way to you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you that you rose him from the dead and because of that, we have hope no matter our circumstances. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.